Hi, my name is Stephen Bryant, and I'm the researcher behind the RelativityChallenge.com website and your host for the accompanying podcast. And today what I'd like you to do is walk you through a presentation that I gave on May 25th, 2007 at the uh, Natural Philosophy Alliance 14th Annual Conference, which was held this year at the University of Connecticut. The main objective of this presentation is, is, are the following. Number one, I would like to convince you that there's a mathematical problem in Einstein's 1905 derivation. Now, we're only going to look at this particular derivation in, the, in this presentation. We're not going to look at his subsequent derivations, or nor are we going to look at derivations that other people have made. Number two, I'm going to offer a mathematical fix that corrects the problem. And number three, we're going to explain why this problem has been so elusive. Now, at the conference, I also briefly introduced the model of complete and incomplete coordinate systems. And well, I'll introduce it here somewhat briefly, but because you're watching this on the web, you also have access to my website, which means the material is out there. So I'll just point you to where you can go to look at, at more information. So one of the things I want to address is what makes this presentation different? Why, different? Why should you pay attention to it? Number one, I think what's different is at, at its core, I'm not asking you to change your belief, your understanding, your point of view. And in fact, I hope to be able to present the problem to you without asking you to view anything differently than you might already view in terms of how you understand special relativity. So I'm not going to play any games with paradoxes or ask you to view them from a different perspective. I'm not going to introduce new terms or definitions, nor am I going to change terms or definitions, nor am I going to introduce new variables or ask you to see variables from a different perspective. So if I do this right, I'm basically going to ask you for three things. Number one, I'm going to ask you to believe that Einstein's 1905 derivation is mathematically sound. And I think this is an important belief, because if you don't believe that it's sound, then you're probably one of the people who's out there already challenging Einstein, and this presentation is probably just going to arm you with additional information. But my goal is to convince more people, people who already believe in Einstein's derivation. So I'd like you to come to, to this presentation with the perspective that it's sound. Number two. I ask you to believe in the basic rules of algebra, and we're not going to do anything more difficult than what I consider to be high school algebra, but you have to believe in certain basic algebraic rules. And if I do my job right in the course of this presentation, I hope to put those two beliefs in conflict with one another. And if I do that, you have an alternative. You can either say, well, Einstein got it right, and it's right because, in other words, you can interpret it that Einstein is above the rules of algebra, or you can do what I'm going to ask, which is agree that Einstein is not above the rules in algebra. And if we find a problem, it then becomes something that must be mathematically addressed. So in order to do this, we have to look at Einstein's work. And we're going to take it down to its mathematical core. And at its core, it simply takes a set of input values, runs it through his transformation equations, and produces a set of output values. Now, people who are grounded in special relativity may want to talk in terms of reference frames, or they may want to talk in terms of coordinate systems or preferred frames, and all of that is fine. All I'm asking is that when we look at this purely on mathematical grounds that we consider, we take some set of input values, run it through some set of equations to produce some set of output values.
Now, in order to see the problem, we have to be able to look at Einstein's derivation as it's produced in his 1905 paper. And I've broken it down into four steps that he takes. Number one, he does a lot of work in section three of his paper to come up with four equations. These equations are, produced, are represented in column two. Now, column two, half of those equations he explicitly states. Uh, the other two he implicitly uh, gives. I'm going to just say he, that they're all implied for the sake of today's conversation. And in column three, he does another implied step, which is to multiply those equations by the square root of one minus v squared over c squared. Now, if you follow steps one, two, and three, as given on this page, you will arrive at column four, which are Einstein's transformation equations. Now, what's interesting about this particular page is if you look at column four, it's my belief that you will not find the root cause of the problem in column four although you may find implications of it, and those implications manifest themselves as paradoxes, for example. Uh, but because you can't find it in column four, and column three is just a multiplication, you're also not going to find the root cause in column two. So this means at some point, we're going to have to go back and look at it in column one. We're going to have to look at Einstein's derivation. But before we do that, I want to point out a few things that I'm going to want you to look at. So number one, I want you to recognize that there are things in Einstein's derivation that are explicitly stated, and I'll highlight some of those as we go forward. There are some things in Einstein's work that are implicit. In other words, he does some of this in his head. However, anyone who walks through this derivation will find that these steps are still performed, whether you write them down on paper or whether you choose to do them in your head as well. But what I'd like to do is hone in on where I believe the problem is, and it occurs in two equations and I've just highlighted those. It's the top and the lower equation in column two. So with that said, let's take a look at Einstein's paper and see what, what I'd like to highlight there. In section three of his 1905 paper, basically there's a number of equations that he does. He, he produces all of his equations simultaneously, somewhat simultaneously, and then he does supporting text to explain what he's doing. What I'm going to do is I'm just going to take this down to its mathematical essence so that we can see what's going on, and only for those two equations that I've highlighted. So to do that, there are a number of equations we're going to look at, which I've just highlighted. And so I'm going to look at that. We're going to simplify his derivation on the next page, and each time I pull something off of this page, I'm going to highlight it on that page so that you can see that it was pulled from his original paper. So Einstein begins with a statement, and then he does a substitution, followed by a second substitution, followed by a third substitution. And this produces the equation that was given in column two on the previous slide. Now the nice thing about this particular slide is that it's just a simple mathematical summary of how Einstein derived one of his equations. But that said, if you believe that Einstein's derivation is right, then you must believe that this page is right, as the material from this page was simply lifted from Einstein's paper. We just took out the text explaining all of the reasons behind the, the substitutions, but at its essence, Einstein starts with an equation and does three substitutions. So now let's look at the algebraic rules that I think must also be adhered to. And what we're going to do there is look at column four from the previous slide. 
Basically, because it's simply algebraic substitution, every equation on the right-hand side of the equal sign must produce the exact same result. And that's simply the rules of algebra and algebraic substitution. In fact, they must produce the same result if we are to conclude his transformation equation. Otherwise, we do not have the traceability to say that they are equal to each other. This is one of the rules of algebra. So if you believe in this slide that they must produce the same result, then you are also agreeing to the rules of algebra. Now what I'd like to do is put those two beliefs in conflict. And we're going to do that by what I'm calling a brute force analysis. So let's take a look at that. In a brute force analysis, we're not going to necessarily be elegant and try and do a formal proof. But rather, what we're going to do is we're going to take specific values and run them through some set of equations and see what we get. In this case, we're going to start with four key values, x equals 50 and t equals 10 y and z equals zero, although they can be set to any value you, you would like because they don't play a role in this particular analysis. Uh, we do need a, a velocity term, so we're going to say v equals five. And Einstein has an alpha term floating around, which he later sets to one. So for now, we'll go ahead and set that to one. Although you can perform your own numerical analysis on the equations and see that alpha really doesn't play a role in our analysis. So when we look at using our input values in the first statement, we get x minus vt in the numerator. Well, we've already said x was 50, and we know that vt is 50, so we get 0 in the numerator. And there's not a whole lot going on in the denominator, so the result is 0. So let's look at the next statement that must produce the same result. And in this case, we have an x prime term. Now, x prime isn't one of our input values, but Einstein told us how to compute x prime. He said x prime equals x minus vt. So we know that x prime is 0. So again, we have 0 in the numerator, not a whole lot going on in the denominator to give us any cause for concern. So the result, again, is 0. So far, so good. Let's take a look at the next equation. In this case, we have t in the parentheses. We have t minus v x prime over c squared minus v squared. Well, again, we already know that x prime is 0. And we know that t, t is 10. So in this case, in the parentheses, we have 10 minus 0, or we get a result of 10c, or a result that's a little less than 3 billion. And we can go back to our original equation and see that that is also the result that's produced there. But this does show us that there is a mathematical problem, an algebraic problem, as we no longer have traceability between all of our statements on the right-hand side, which we have already agreed to must produce the same result if we're going to have an algebraically sound derivation. This is a mathematical problem that I believe I've been able to now point out without relying on any paradoxes, any new terms, any changes to definitions, any new values, etc. Now, in order to solve the problem, however, we are going to have to look at some definitions. And the two definitions that we're going to talk about are on the next slide. And they are dependent and independent 
variables. So for our purposes, we're going to call an independent variable anything that we produce, anything that we give. So on the slide I showed earlier, these will be our input values. And a dependent variable is something that's found as the result of a computation or an equation. Now, typically, dependent variables are on the left-hand side of the equal sign, but they don't have to be. And uh, they're not always there, but just as a general rule of thumb, that's where you would find them. So given this particular definition, let's look at Einstein's statements that he gives in section three of his paper. In particular, we're going to look at a statement where he says x prime equals x minus vt. Now, it's, it appears that most people, when they look at these types of transformation equations, uh, don't really talk a lot about v or c. So we're not going to consider those for today's discussion. In fact, we're going to consider x and t as our independent variable, since those are the ones we're going to produce, or excuse me, or we are going to give, and x prime is the dependent variable, since that's the one we're going to find. Now, another way of saying this particular statement is we can say x prime is dependent upon x and t. So now let's look at Einstein's statement in its entirety. And in this case, we find that Einstein says he begins with, if we place x prime equals x minus vt, it is clear that a point at rest in the system k must have a system values x prime y z independent of time. And the question that I ask is, is this a true statement? And the answer is, it depends. And it depends on how we interpret it mathematically, because this is written in English, versus, or in, in its original version in German, um, but it's not written in the formal language of mathematics. So we have to interpret it in mathematical terms. One way to, to make this more specific is to add the clause where t is rep or where time is represented by t prime. Now this is a mathematical uh, correct interpretation because in the first clause we have x prime is dependent upon x and t, and then in the second part of the clause we have x prime is independent of t prime. We don't have a conflict, so it's fine. But if we were to say, for example, where t where time is represented by t. Now we have a problem, because in the first part of this sentence, we say x prime is dependent upon t, and then in the latter half, we're saying x prime is independent of t. Now, in Einstein's very next sentence, he tells us which values he's going to use for setting up his partial differential equation, and we find that he chose t. And I um, submit that that is the source of the problem as it goes into defining the partial differential equation. However, as you can see on this particular slide, I think that there's a way to fix it. And the way we would fix the problem is to simply replace t with t prime when he sets up the partial differential equation. And once you do that, you get the linear function that's very uh, similar to what Einstein produced. However, instead of t, you have t prime in the equation. Now, 
I'm not going to go into what this equation means or why I feel it is the correct equation. I believe that that's covered by at least two or three of the papers that's currently on my website. And the one that I will probably refer you to is the Understanding Time paper, simply because it looks at each of those terms and explains them in a very clear and graphical way, um, and especially the term v times x prime over c squared minus v squared, which is a term that I've not seen um, completely explained uh, by other people in the special relativity community that I have asked. So it's not to say that they may not have a definite a, a explanation for it. It's just that I have not seen one, and I do explain it in my paper. Now, once you have that corrected time equation, we can replace that in our derivation and see the four columns here on this slide. Um, so we do the four sub, the, the, we begin with the statement and we do the three substitutions that Einstein did in his paper. However, notice here, and this is a very important notice, we get the exact same result as Einstein got. Now this is very interesting and it's very important because we get the exact same result. So right off the bat, people are going to ask, Steve, why did we go through all of this exercise? Why did you, you just spend 20 minutes with us to walk us through something and we get the exact same result? And my answer is, yes, we get the exact same result here, but, uh, actually, um, before I go to the but part, um, I, I do want to show that it is mathematically sound. Okay, now, going back to the but part, but it does not mean that we got time transformation equation. And this is important for us because what's presented in column one is Einstein's original uh, tau transformation and in column two is my proposed correction. And you'll see that they don't produce the same result. In fact, you get different uh, results if, if you put the same input values in there. In Einstein's case, you got 10C and in the corrected case, you got a zero for the values that I gave on the earlier slide. So my belief is that any new model must explain this corrected time equation. So any model that tries to tweak or slightly modify Einstein's equation, I believe would be challenged under the same analysis that we've gone through here, which is one of dependent and independent variable confusion. So any time that you're doing a derivation, first begin by writing x, y, z, and t on a piece of paper and write independent next to them. And then any time a new equation is produced or introduced or going to be used in par as part of the derivation, if you just look at the equation and say, which are my dependent and independent variables? And if you find that someone is using x, y, z, or t as a dependent variable, that is the source of a problem that will enable them to get Einstein's tau equation. And so I, I will call it um, independent and, and dependent variable confusion as the source of the problem. So let's go back to that particular statement and look at Einstein's uh, derivation and highlight where that confusion occurs. And it occurs in this case in columns two and three. So if you look at columns two and three, I've highlighted T there because in this particular case, he sets t as a dependent variable, which allows him to do the substitution in column three. And then when we get to column four, he allows it to be an independent variable. 
Now, Einstein produces the result, simply the correct result, simply because of the order in which he does his substitutions. If you do the substitution that's given in, in column four prior to doing the substitution that's given in column three, you will not get the same result. And I, I think I've highlighted some of the reasons why this problem has been hard to identify, but let me just show you some of the key reasons. Number one, Einstein does produce the correct, um, what I'm calling Xi equation. And number two, if you only look at the simplification of his linear function, then you will get the correct simplification. So when you ask people, is Einstein's derivation correct, and they only look at it at that level, they're going to say, yes, it seems correct. However, now with the new information I've provided in this particular presentation, I hope that you can see that number one, there is a problem in its derivation, and that's a problem that must be fixed for it to remain mathematically sound. And that problem, while it doesn't manifest itself in the validity of the Xi equation, it does manifest itself in the validity of the tau equation, because the problem is not in the simplification. In fact, the problem is not in the partial differential equation. The problem is in the setup that occurs prior to the partial differential equation. So very briefly, what does this mean? It means that while there is a mathematical inconsistency or problem in his derivation, his model fails. It, it has to be mathematically sound. And if you correct it in the way that I am proposing in this presentation and through the proposed material on my website, uh, then you do not have a one-to-one -one mapping between input values and output values, which is a requirement for his particular theory. Number two, any alternative theory has to adopt the corrected tau equation. And again, I believe that anyone who has Einstein's two equations that I've, I've walked through in this presentation, um, those two equations, if they both are existent in derivation, will probably have uh, the dependent and independent variable confusion that I talked about earlier. Not always. Some are a little bit harder to find, but for the ones that I've looked at, I've been able to point those out. And lastly, um, I do believe it requires that we need a new model. Now, the new model cannot throw the baby out with the bathwater. The new model must remain consistent with experimental evidence. I know I've received a lot of information, a lot of feedback from people saying, so does this mean you go back to Newton because Newton doesn't explain XYZ experiment? And they're absolutely right. It doesn't. And you need a model that will explain everything. In my particular case, uh, I have a model of complete and incomplete coordinate systems, which offers different theoretical predictions, is consistent with some of the experiments that I have looked at, um, and it applies, it introduces a new way of using the equations. It, I believe it's mathematically sound. Of course, time will, will be the judge of that. And interestingly, one of the things I've heard from people visiting the website in the past is, well, Einstein is consistent with Lorenz, and I would argue that, yes, and Lorenz can be uh, consistent with a lot of things, including my revised equations. So uh, just putting that out there, again, the key point here is not to throw the baby out with the bathwater. Now, 
In the next few slides, I walk through the model of complete and incomplete coordinate systems in terms of some key points. I'm not going to go through all of those. The only one I want to highlight on this particular page is that I believe it lifts many of the paradoxes and limitations of SRT while still explaining the experimental uh, evidence and experiments that we've seen out there, and that positions us nicely going forward. Um, again, most of the material on CICS you can find on the website. And I had also a summary chart. The key thing from the summary chart is just to recognize that um, Newton had one set of transformation equations. Einstein came up with another set, in his case, wavefront equations. Uh, he had two types of transformation equations. And in my particular model, I have three types of transformation equations. So you do have to view the world through a slightly different lens. But uh, through that lens, I think it, it offers a, uh, a unique perspective and opportunity, as, as I mentioned, is consistent with experimental evidence and allows us to remove some of the paradoxes and limitations. So for more information, definitely feel free to visit my website, relativitychallenge.com. And I hope that you'll tune in for future podcasts, uh, get involved in some of the groups, send me e email and feedback. I'd love to hear what your thoughts are. This particular presentation is copyright by Stephen Bryant and RelativityChallenge.com 2007. And I hope that you'll join us for future podcasts and visit the website. Until then, be well.